Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, your host, and it's always an honor and pleasure to have you here with me. Okay, we're we're now a few weeks, probably I think three or four weeks into the war in Ukraine, and like as I keep trying to say, like so many people, um, my nervous system is is feeling pretty frozen. You know, the, the sympathetic nervous system can go into fight or flight or freeze. And for whatever reasons in my own history, when I get really triggered or scared, I go into more of a freeze mode, and that can be really exhausting. So I'm just trying to acknowledge and speak to the collective fear, the collective exhaustion, um, the terror, the agony, the anguish, that we're all witnessing, and it you know it doesn't just apply to the 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 refugees and the the brave Ukrainians fighting the invasion of Russia. It also includes the Russians escaping Russia, and this is all occurring amidst the backdrop of you know tremendous global upheaval as a result of a several year pandemic, um, which has revealed myriad forms of inequality and the pain of that inequality or social injustice, particularly where I'm from in the United States. So there's just layers and layers right now of really significant and ongoing stimuli, ongoing conditions of a real challenge, tremendous challenge, some of the hardest challenges that one can face as a human. These are nightmare challenges. And just as I was describing my own awareness of my own frozenness, the, 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 the freezing fear within me, um, I'm reminded and inspired by the Dharma. The Dharma, uh, as I understand it, uh, is an ongoing practice path that meets these challenges, however they manifest. The Dharma helps one meet these challenges and through a real wise, compassionate relationship or connection to understanding what's at play within the challenges, it, the Dharma positions us in a way that we can respond from clarity and compassion. And um, that may seem like a leap, but I'll be continuing to try to flesh out that thesis or a form of that thesis over these talks. So today's talk is a talk that's a continuation of a series I'm giving on working with challenges in your own inner being, um, frozen ice patterns or isolated contracted energies within your own being. And I'm trying to lay out a compassionate framework that I'm calling a kind of an updated adaptation of compassionate rain. And this talk is the third in that installment. Uh, where I look at the letter I in the word RAIN. So the letter R in RAIN stands for compassionate receptivity. That's an approach we bring to the practice to be receptive compassionately to our experience. To, and the compassionate piece there is to re, the desire to release suffering. So that's, that's the, the animating energy of compassion, to mitigate free release suffering for oneself or for other, for another or for all others. So from compassionate receptivity, I've, in the last couple talks, I've also been exploring compassionate alignment. What does it mean to align our awareness 
around the intention to listen deeply, to listen to understand. And that's what I get into in today's talk, how this deep listening really starts to transform into a hearing with understanding. What I think the Buddha got at with the idea of sati sampajana. Sati is often translated as mindfulness, the awareness or presence of mind that's connected to what's occurring. But sampajana, clear comprehension, indicates the depth of, of understanding that sees things quote, more deeply and with more nuance and more insight. And one of, the, one of the, the last themes I try to set the stage for in this talk is that this listening that I'm referring to becomes the foundation from which a, a more higher cognitive capacity starts to emerge, which is the capacity for cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy, unlike its emotional sibling, and that's emotional empathy, cognitive empathy doesn't necessarily allow you to feel what someone else is feeling. Like you don't have the same gut-wrenching ache in your gut or stomach when you feel someone else or see someone else in agony. But with cognitive empathy, you start to be able to take the perspective of another. You, you, it's an it's a activity of imagination, of moral imagination, to imagine how another sees their position, their situation, or maybe a conf conflictual dynamic. And the reason I'm getting into that is I think cognitive empathy, which I'll be exploring more, but I think cognitive empathy is one of these skills, one of these capacities that is a precondition, it's a prerequisite for peace. That without cognitive empathy, without the ability to see and understand how somebody else might see something, it's very, very difficult to, to negotiate a peaceful relationship. So the meditation looks at how we negotiate a peaceful, a peaceful relationship within ourselves. And then from that understanding, we have, I think, a tangible firsthand reference point for how to explore that peace outside of ourselves. And as I say here, I think that's one of the things the world needs, obviously. We need a vision for how peace is attained, how peace is established. So before I give you today's talk, just want to wish you all the best. I want to encourage you to keep practicing, take refuge in your practice. If you're able to practice, you are very, very fortunate. The conditions in your life are such that you are able to devote time to cultivating your heart, to awakening your heart, and that's one of the, um, the, the, the gems of, uh, I think, a human life is the potential to awaken to this deep essence of the awakened heart and, um, and bring that into the world. So thank you for your practice. I wish you all the best. Stay safe wherever you are. I wish you peace. And without further ado, here's today's talk, Compassionate Inquiry. Welcome, everyone. If you're just joining us, welcome here. Um, and to all the, the those of you that are returning or tuning in over the recording, welcome, welcome back. So for this evening's talk, I will be continuing on with this mini-series of reflections I'm giving about a kind of a, an adaptation or 
kind of an alteration to a, a mindfulness formula or an approach to mindfulness known as the RAIN process. <clears throat> and, and I'll be getting into the specifics of that shortly. But before I just move along with that, that series or that, that theme, I want to contextualize, just zoom out for a second and, and get a big picture overview of, of how you might consider uh, kind of uh, integrating and contextualizing what we're doing specifically in each of these sessions and how it fits in with the bigger picture. So one of the, um, the phrases that Terry and I often use when we talk about the suite of practices that we uh, teach from the yin yoga, the qigong, and the meditation is that we're essentially teaching one practice with many forms. We often, I often use that phrase. I've heard it on retreats. I use it on retreats myself. Um, and that the one practice is awakening our, our minds and hearts, you know, awakening what in Buddhism is referred to as bodhicitta, awakened heart consciousness, which is... Um, kind of the unification of wisdom and compassion, this bodhicitta, this awakened bodhicitta. And in the, the heart side and the, the, the mind side, which are two sides of the same uh, consciousness that's awakening, um, meditation literature, meditation traditions and practices tend to often emphasize one side of the equation. So there's a lot of heart practices that get offered, such as uh, loving-kindness practice or Tonglen. Um, and then there's practices that try to emphasize more of the wisdom side. Uh, one that I'm most familiar with is Vipassana, which is a training to develop a sharp clarity of what's happening. And so um, over the course of our practice time together, like throughout the year, I try to move and shift the instructions through these big themes. So emphasizing the heart, emphasizing the mind a little bit. But I just want to mention today before we move along that <clears throat> really it's one practice, many forms. That the more we refine our ability to relate well to ourselves, to others, to the world, that, that better relationship is often predicated directly on seeing more clearly what we're relating to. So as we develop better relationships to ourselves, to others, we start to see things more clearly. And as we see more clearly, we also refine our capacity for relationship with what we're in connection with. So these two things are two sides or two polarities of the same process. And, um, <clears throat> you know, finishing into last year, towards the end of last year, towards the end of 2021, and into early part of this year, 2022, I was emphasizing more of the Vipassana side, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A, -S -S the Vipassana side of methodologies and su suggestions and techniques on how to sharpen attention or look closely. Um, and part of that development of seeing clearly is also at the beginning or the dawning of appreciation, appreciating the stillness from which experience is seen. So that there's a, a kind of right here, right now presence of stillness that we often uh, don't recognize, we don't appreciate, we don't 
uh, see it because we're so entranced or fixated or um, enmeshed with the things we're seeing, the objects, the experiences that we see. So uh, we kind of moved into exploring stillness a bit and, and how we might do that. But as I was uh, talking about the theme of listening deeply, when we really listen from a place of stillness or listen from a place of silence within ourselves, we inevitably, as I tried to point out with the reflections on the, um, the, the Egyptian monastics that uh, went to the desert and, and really confronted and spoke about how they confronted their inner demons. But when we, when we listen closely at periods of time, not always, but when we listen closely and deeply, often parts of ourselves that are either isolated or contracted or frozen, but these isolated, contracted energies of ourselves tend to be, emerge. In other words, ice cubes, the, like the frozen blocks of ice in our being start to, to show up. They show up when we feel conflict. You know, when we feel frozen in a kind of conflict or cornered in a conflict. And, and the meditation, the simplicity of the practice, I would say, often reveals those, those dynamics. So just by sitting, not doing any much, we tend to uh, unearth and reveal our more unconscious, habituated patterns of, of struggle, resistance, um, and, and conflict-making. So... Um, I'm going to continue on tonight with this uh, sort of adaptation of, of the idea of uh, RAIN, this formula for compassionately working with challenging energy. Um, and if you're just joining, the, uh, the recap on that is that this idea of compassionate RAIN is to, just a sort of a, a slight evolution or, or alteration to the, 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 the words that are usually attributed to these letters. So... Um, this is my formulation, but the idea with compassionate rain is that we compassionately set the conditions up where we can receive our, our self. We can receive uh, what our experiences, we can receive um, the, really the quote-unquote truth of what's occurring within our experience. And from that compassionate receptivity, uh, last week's suggestion was that we can practice starting to align our energy like the energy of our consciousness. We align the energy of our consciousness to listen to this energy or listen to this part or listen to this experience with the intention, which we'll be moving into now, of the I, which is to inquire into the experience or inquire into the energy to understand it. And uh, understanding can have you know, different aspects. There's the understanding of why it's happening, um, and that why question can often lead to a um, lead to digressions that go on indefinitely or in, you know in, towards inf infinity. You know why did why am I so reactive? Well, it's because my father was the way he was, and my mother when I was three dropped me. And well, why did that happen? Well, because when my mother was three, this is an Alan Wattsian line, when my mother was three, she got dropped. And why did she get dropped? Well, when her mother was three, she got dropped. So there's like, we go back, you know, into infinite regression here. Um, so the understanding, at times we can get a sense of, you know, the why maybe, or a, a, a thread of the why. <clears throat> but the, the real understanding that I'm going to try to emphasize tonight is understanding how this part of us, 
the subpart, this member of our inner cabinet or inner committee, how this part or energy sees itself, how it sees the world from its perspective. And what I'll be suggesting is that's, that the, the ability of you, the meditator, to see how a part energy sees the world or sees a situation, what its concerns are, what its, what its anxieties are, that is a, an extension or that's an expression of cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy, to differentiate it from emotional empathy, cognitive empathy is, is the ability to perspective take, to take on the perspective of another. In this case, we're talking about inner part work, or, or, or just take on the perspective of a part of ourselves, almost, um, almost listening to ourselves as, as a stranger might listen, overhear a conversation. Um, and as I'll try to hopefully get to in tonight's talk, that capacity for cognitive empathy um, is potentially, and I'm going to raise this hypothetically, but that capacity for cognitive empathy may very well be a prerequisite for peace, period. Whether it's peace within ourselves, peace between ourselves and another, peace between groups, peace between nations. That without the ability to hear and understand how another party sees the world, if we can't do that, we, we, we're not going to be able to come together with a mutuality or a sense of mutuality and, and mutual understanding. So that's the, the big picture. And if I were to summarize it, I would say... You know, all winter, Terry and I have been talking about the, the, the central process that we've been emphasizing in practice is the practice of listening. We've been talking about listening in many different forms, listening to the body, listening to the breath, listening to energy, listening to our minds, our hearts. And now, as we move into spring, I would say the listening we've been doing, and that you'll continue to do, is going to grow branch and expand from just listening to hearing. And you know, this is you know, a bit of a semantic game, but what I mean by that is like listening, you know, you can, you can be there and listen, but you might not hear to the point of understanding what you're experiencing or what you're listening to. So the, the added intentionality now is that when we're listening, we're really listening wholeheartedly to understand and to hear. And I want to just give a, hopefully a down-to-earth, um, accessible, relatable, and hopefully illustrative sense of why I think this is important and maybe how you might find uh, connection and application for, for this process. Um, and so to give you that sense, I just want to take you on a brief little bit of a, a tour of the last year. Um, <clears throat> at the beginning of, or at the end of 2020, Terry and I bought this house in Maine together and we merged our lives. We had, we had been kind of, at the, the year prior to that, we both realized we were in um, marriages that we could no longer stay in. We woke up to the fact that we were in denial about our love for each other and we needed to get together. And there was a lot of upheaval in our life in that beginning part of uh, 2020, um, just on the outset of the pandemic. 
But in, at the end of that year and into 2021, we, we, we kind of found our, our new home and we were settling in and it was uh, really just this wonderfully uh, peaceful and, and lovely time at times. But as any, peop, any group or any person will know, when they move in together with somebody else, whether it's a romantic partner or a life partner or a roommate or dorm mate or whatever it is, um, there are certain challenges that arise when you get used to living with a new person or a new being. And yes, there was a lot of love, but there were you know, differences of opinion, differences of view about how to stack wood or how to properly load a dishwasher or you know, um, how to shovel snow came up at one point. Um, and probably the, the more humorous one or most humorous one was differences of opinion on how to maintain a hygienic field in the bathroom floor. You know, there it became clear that there's kind of like people who use a, a bath mat a, as a solo p- a piece to step on after you've taken a shower to dry off on. And then there are people that use a bath mat with a, maybe a, an, a, an extra layer or a, a covering of a towelette on top of the bath mat. Differences of opinion. Um, Terry referred to the, the, the bath towelette that I was used to using as a, as she referred to that as Josh's doily, <laughs> to give you a sense of uh, who, who had what view on what there. Um, but my point in sharing this, and, and just to sort of ground it in everyday experience, is that these are relatively trifling matters. These are, we're talking about two people who care the world for each other, and they're these rather trifling matters of, you know, how to stack wood, how to load a dishwasher. And even though these were trifling matters, they were capable of bringing us into communicative conflict that felt exi- like existential, uh, like an existential threat. Like, if they think that, or if she thinks that, or if he thinks that, how can we, how can we be doing what we're doing? This is unsupportable. This is untenable. And amidst these kind of flares of conflict, um, we would often afterwards do a post-mortem and try to figure out what was going on. And in the post-mortem, it always came down to a breakdown in communication. And the breakdown sort of centered around either or both misinterpretation and, misper- and or misperception. That one of us or both of us was misinterpreting or misperceiving what the other was, was trying to say. And we realized this because we were... Uh, in the in the postmortems, what we would start to do is we would uh, practice a reflective listening exercise, and, and I shared this a little bit last year, a few few points. But the, the the essence of the reflecting reflective listening exercise is that we would take turns, and for say two minutes, Terry or I would speak and share about how we saw what had happened, and then after those two minutes, the other party, she or me, would reflect back what the first person had said to the, to the satisfaction of the first person that shared. And, you know, we would sort of break down 
these these skirmishes in almost like a frame by frame directorial way, the way a, 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 direct, a movie director might, to really see what was going on in each frame or each frame of the scene. And um, what became very clear was that there was a there was something I was doing something that I was not aware of. And um, Terry used the phrase, you have tone, <laughs> there's tone. But, you know, the more I reflected on it, my tone was a, uh, when I got into conflict, and this has a historical root for me, um, but when I get into conflict, without knowing it, I can start to have a fairly unconscious but sarcastic, belittling, pejorative tone, which caused Terry to feel umbrage. She's like, you know, how, how dare he treat me? Like, how dare he say that? Does he not know what he's like? Imagine if the Sangha knew what he was saying right now. <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and it became clear that this mismatch or uh, conflictual mismatch styles of conflict management were leading to what I started to call a discrepancy between intention and reception. Meaning, I might be intending to say something, but what was being received by Terry was something entirely different, and vice versa. She was intending to, to say, communicate something, but the way I heard it and felt it and experienced it, 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 it was received in a very different way. And I couldn't escape, as we, I would come to these, these kind of conflict, conflictual insights, I couldn't escape the irony of it all. And the irony was that all last year, I was having an ongoing series of public conversations with my, one of my like, intellectual heroes, Robert Wright, about how cognitive bias fuels conflict in the world. Things like confirmation bias, where we filter what our senses and intelligence is telling, giving us we filter that through a pre-existing view of what we think is right or the way it is. So we, can, we take bits of, of information that confirm our bias and reject things that cause um, a kind of a, a challenge or a cognitive dissonance around what we think the way we think it is. Or we get into attribution error, where we project intention, we project essence on the other in a way that is, is not accurate to their position or the way they see things. Um, and, and so I was having these talks with, with Bob, uh, you know, if some of you know about these on the podcast, so I was trying to explore his, his worldview and his dharma on how he sees world history unfolding and how we can try to mitigate these biases to to, act, to maybe save the species from the apocalypse that, that we're likely going to be facing within the next few decades. Meaning apocalyptic global threats that require global solutions. And, um, and, and I was also, so in reflect, going through all this, I was realizing how much these cognitive biases, confirmation bias, attribution error, we're creating real sources of pain in an otherwise perfect situation. Here I am with person I care most about in a beautiful part of the world on a 
very comfortable little plot of land with a house on it, like the, the creature comforts I'd never really had. So things, the conditions here were idyllic. They're like a mini retreat-like environment that we're living in. And yet, within that, these biases were still inflaming kind of bewildering conflicts at times. So, uh, as sincere, diligent Dharma practitioners, we did a lot of reflective listening. We, would, we did a lot of practice with this. And we would do it in, in, at times when the stakes were low. So we, we didn't uh, always do it when we were in, in, in conflict, but more or less in, in, in the morning over coffee or over a dog walk, we'd take turns. We'd, we'd go for like five minutes each and, and just share about what we were thinking, kind of in an open journal style of, of discussion. And then the other person would reflect back what they had heard. And, and we'd, we'd practice so we'd listening closely and then reflecting what we've heard to make sure that we heard it correctly or heard it the way the other person intended. And that, that practice, which, you know, if you've ever been in couples therapy, is sort of a bread and butter tool of, of couples work, um, is something that I will recommend, we'll be exploring how we can kind of practice it informally in our life, because you don't even have to be in a relationship to practice this. Just You can pr practice this in subtle ways with friends, with coworkers, um, even with yourself, as, as we'll get into tonight. But... Um, I, we definitely found that the, the reflective listening helped tremendously to help develop cognitive empathy and help us see uh, uh, in more of an ongoing way how, other, how the other person saw things. But as I shared maybe three weeks back, there were still situations, there were still conditions that would come up from time to time that more often than not would trigger me and in the triggered state, they would disable my ability to have cognitive empathy. So the example I gave was over the winter, I woke up at 4 a.m., we woke up at 4 a.m. to discover that uh, the house was 41 degrees on the first floor. It was bitterly cold. And the reason it was bitterly cold was that a door was open. And I fell into the pothole of attribution error, attributing this door to be open to her son, who had clearly ne was negligent in, in terms of closing it. Turned out it wasn't his fault at all. It was just the wind. It was just the wind. But um, in, as I shared then, uh, I, what I realized was that I had parts of myself that were in some ways still wounded from my upbringing. That there, was, there were parts of myself that were still in, in kind of wounded, semi-traumatized conditions, so that when there was a trigger, they would flood me. Those parts would flood me or overwhelm me to the point that I could not see things clearly. I could not hear. I could listen. I could pretend that I was hearing, but I was not able to hear or see a situation clearly when I was that triggered. So this, is, this led me to get back into uh, therapy a little bit and to, to really do some inner work with parts, these inner parts, as a way of uh, integrating them. Not to get rid of them, but to kind of re, uh, renegotiate their role or the way they participate in, as members of my inner cabinet so that they don't kind of create the same kind of overwhelm or flooding and allow me as core self 
to hear and see and be more present and, and more able to take perspective in a given situation. And I, maybe just, I don't know if this is necessary to illustrate, but it, it might help. Um, if you've ever been in a sort of a, a verbal conflict and uh, the other party says something and, and while you're listening to them, you know, there's part of you that says, oh, come on, that's nonsense. That's obvious. I've, I've, I, we've already covered this point 16 times. Why are, why are they going over this again? We, I, I know this, but what they're not seeing is this other thing. <laughs> so if you, if you have had that feeling, as I was getting, uh, this is an example where the inner part is just so worked up, it precludes or obstructs one's ability to hear clearly. Which brings me back to a, a, a quotation that I shared a lot, I think last year, from my friend Howard Axelrod, who came in and gave us a, a session once. Um, but Howie said in his book, uh, The Stars in Our Pockets, which is a wonderful read, um, he said, what if seeing clearly, sort of raises this quite, what if seeing clearly is an ongoing balancing act between seeing within a framework so seeing from within a framework and seeing beyond that framework. And when I, when I was preparing this talk, that, that phrase came back to me because we need to see, our, see what's going on within ourselves, particularly in relationship. Because we have to see when are we getting activated, when are we having emotion that may be uh, triggering any one of these embedded cognitive biases in us that make it very difficult to see clearly. So we have, we have to look within our framework, but we also have to check in and hear from an outside framework about what's going on, and hopefully many outside frameworks. And the combination is a way to, to develop, you could say 2020, more, more 2020 vision on what's occurring. So, as I said at the beginning, my, my premise here is that uh, meditation is a path of inner peace. You could say it's a path of peace in general. The, the awakening of our hearts and minds through compassion, the development of compassion and wisdom allows us to not be quite as swayed by the inner energy of strong emotion such that we're able to hear and listen and understand what we're listening to uh, with another or with others. And I, I just the premise I'm getting, trying to make here is that that ability to hear how or see how or imagine how, because sometimes it's not maybe directly in conversation. You have to maybe read news articles or Read, read historical books or commentary. Um, but there's a real importance to, I think, open to perspectives that may not confirm your own bias about how things are. And that, I think, is something that I'll come back to uh, with time about that importance. But in working with ourselves in our practice, 
there there are kind of two levels to this 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 listening with inquiry to listening to understand and they're they're both kind of implicit within the the broad framework of yin meditation so with yin meditation the idea is that rather than trying to control the mind or control your attention or focus on the breath only with yin meditation the idea is we begin with more open receptivity which really is an energy of kindness it's receptivity that's kind because it's receiving what's happening not trying to interrupt or cut it off or redirect or or, or um, shut down or, or repress it's a kind energy that receives what's occurring and then the compassion part so that's the kindness that's the metta that's the loving kindness receptivity itself is a foundation for kindness but the compassion side, the karuna, the compassion side of the yin meditation process is playing the edge. And that's what I was speaking about last week. So if you missed that, that's in the last week's talk. But the playing, when we play the edge, we're, we're listening closely to what we're capable of tolerating, what we're capable of working with, and what we're not. And when we can work with things, that's when we try to really look closely and understand what may be at play, what's causing the suffering, how do we release that. And when it's too much, we we play the edge and redirect our attention, come back to the perch, bring our our attention back to the hands, could open the eyes, just take in the setting that you're in. Those are ways of playing the edge. And that's the, the more skillful you get at that, you know, at first it can feel a little mechanical, but with practice it becomes more fluid and second nature. But that playing the edge um, really is the activity of a compassionate relationship to yourself. And part of playing the edge might mean that when something, and this is just an if, but when and if a stronger energy comes up that really seizes you, you know, and I as I was practicing doing a little yin yoga before this talk, I was reviewing a conversation I had with uh, Terry's son's friend about fishing. And he was saying, he's a big fisherman, he likes to fish a lot, and he said, you know, I just love the silence when he gets out in the water and just casts out and just sits there quietly for a while. So that's kind of like the yin meditation or the, the, the initial phase when you're just listening. You're just sitting there listening. And maybe you get a little tug on the fishing line, but... It, the fish doesn't get hooked, so you don't reel the fish in. But sometimes there's, there's, you really get seized by something, like, like the chi comes up. In, in, when an acupuncture needle goes in and the, the chi grabs it, the Chinese say that there's a, the de chi sensation. The chi is grabbing the needle like a fish grabbing a hook. And sometimes when we're sitting, within that stillness of, of, of clear listening, some, we get seized by something. We get hooked. And that's what I'm talking about. When that occurs... Um, that's a good time to align your attention to be with that seized, hooked, caught, overwhelmed energy. If you're able to sit with it, you have to evaluate that. But the idea is to align your consciousness, align the energy of your consciousness to listen. And you may need to ask other parts to quiet down a little bit. And we, t- we t- I talked about that last week, the importance of kind of conducting the process so that uh, other parts of you don't get in and create a pig pile of, of trying to listen to the, the energy that's, that's really coming forward. But from, from that alignment, 
the, uh, this, the next suggestion is the eye of inquiry. And I'm not going to get too specific about how to inquire into this tonight. It's more I want to open up that as a question for you. How can you inquire with the intention to understand, hear, and integrate whatever uh, energy that is arising that's, that's hooking you? And it's, it, if you, if I, the reason I share the, the, the um, kind of the experience that Terry and I went through is that if you can imagine that doing that with another person, you can imagine listening closely to another person to hear how they see it. It's, I, I'm inviting you and, and suggesting you bring the same approach, the same energy to listening to yourself. And so from that, may our practice start to evolve from listening to hearing. Okay, I hope today's talk, as always, gives you some reflections, some things to consider, and some avenues to explore in your own practice. And, um, and I really do hope that these reflections serve you on your path. Um, as always, if you'd like to practice in an ongoing way with me or Terry um, in our online practice community that focuses on the practices of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, please do check us out. You can look us up um, on my website, joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. Um, there's a link for you in the show notes. And um, it's just a really low-key way to support your practice, support the work we do here, and get into a good, kind of good karmic spiral of giving, receiving, developing, and growing. So um, until I see you next, take good care of yourself, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing. I wish you peace and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.